Good evening. Um, perhaps we can make a start. I'm David Pearshow. I'm actually the token male on the platform. Um, I'm sorry we had to move, move well, I'm not sorry we had to move from uh, Wolfson uh, Lecture Theatre here because uh, many more people uh, wanted to come than uh, were anticipated. Uh, one thing I should make clear is that uh, this isn't a course in derivatives trading, that uh, no family futures have been introduced to allow you to speculate on the price of a family going up or down. It's not reporting on how the uh, Dilnot report has affected uh, um, family futures. Um, nor is it a forecast on the prospects for families that uh, I expect many of you will have read the OECD International Futures Programme on the future of the family to 2050, a scoping report, which uh, hasn't been followed up. This is the third volume uh, in a series, the first of which, uh, EastEnders, was published in 2003, jointly written by Anne Power and uh, uh, Catherine um, Mumford, now Catherine Hans, um, about uh, the London families in the study. Um, Catherine uh, left the family program and within five years had four children, which is a family program in itself. Uh, the second volume looked at uh, 20 families uh, in depth, City Survivors, published uh, four years ago. But uh, we're here today for the publication of uh, Family Futures, um, uh, which was uh, uh, a product of uh, three authors, uh, uh, Rosemary Davidson. Rosie is now a research fellow at the uh, Policy St Studies Institute and uh, sitting over there. Uh, Helen Wilmot uh, now combines running a business making bespoke cupcakes, we can give you her name and address, uh, and running the Airedale and Bradford Cancer Support Trust with looking after her first six-week-old baby, Betty, which may be why she isn't able to be here tonight. Uh, Anne Power uh, has been um, a colleague of mine for uh, quite a considerable time. Over that period, she's taught me uh, three things. First, uh, that it was rather important to talk to people. Uh, somebody actually said to me, uh, unsolicited, uh, um, uh, at lunch today, uh, everyone wants to help the poor, but no one even talks to them. Uh, Anne Power um, is a very distinct uh, exception to that rule. Unfortunately, there are some colleagues here at LSE um, who call themselves social scientists but might better be described as anti-social scientists and never speak to anyone. Uh, secondly, uh, she made me realise the importance of family, community and neighbourhood uh, when some on the left uh, have thought only the state mattered. And third, uh, she's uh, made me realise that responsibilities are very important and condescension is no way to assist anyone. Uh, what we're going to do is Anne's going to speak uh, for about 25 minutes, um, then uh, we'll have uh, uh, three uh, comments, um, discussion from Margaret Hodge, Jane Waldfogel and Catherine Rake, who I'll introduce in a moment uh, when we get there. Uh, then we've got time for some uh, questions uh, and discussion, uh, and then... Um, uh, we can adjourn to a reception uh, high above us on the eighth floor. Um, having passed by the um, uh, booth provided by uh, the publishers, uh, the uh, um, Policy Press, um, uh, where you'll be able to buy copies uh, at a uh, 
special one-day reduced price. Uh, I do want to thank uh, several people now because at the end it's, um, everyone wants to go. Um, first of all, um, the funding bodies that have uh, made this possible, the Economic and Social Research Council, the Nuffield Foundation, the Esme Fairburn Foundation, Sport England and uh, DEFRA. Uh, I want to particularly thank Nicholas Searle, Laura Lane and Cheryl Connor who've organised uh, today's uh, events. Uh, we will be thanking the uh, speakers one by one but I thank all of you for being here today and hand over to Anne Power. Well, thank you all very much for coming. Um, I'm sorry we didn't know we were going to have this room. We would have gone for it and got everybody here who expressed interest in this study. We were restricted to a much smaller room and then at the last minute the school relented. Anyway, thank you. Um, it's in the news about families at the moment. Ian Duncan Smith has announced a plan to challenge channel private billions to the poorest children. Whether the private billions will come, uh, because they of course don't believe in taxes, is another question. But anyway, the, the idea is there. And today, a very, very interesting report came out about early action, um, basically arguing that if you help people when they're coping, then you're likely to avoid lots of problems. This study is about people who basically cope. So just keep in mind, this is a study about people who cope. It's not about disasters in the making. It's about people who cope, but they cope with something rather special. Lots and lots of difficulties in the places where they live and in the incomes they have to manage on. So what is Family Futures about? It's about what the problems are or what the circumstances are that surround families bringing up children on low incomes, but not family problems per se, but the poor areas in which they're struggling to do it. And the story is told through the lens of 200 families who we visited over eight years. It was a 10-year study, eight years of visiting, 56,000 answers in all from these 200 families, the same families over time. Um, and therefore we were able to see how changing conditions affect families, which obviously made it a very unique and fascinating study, especially if you want to do something about early intervention, which basically means stopping problems from ha happening. Because if you intervene early, it costs one gold nugget, and if you wait till you're in teenage pregnancy or juvenile delinquency or prison or all the other things that happen, you're into 10 or 20 or 30. Um, so, this was one of the uh, views that seemed to capture what parents feel about the areas. I just liked the area from the moment I arrived. For my interview at the school, I just walked up the road and thought, I like it here, which was totally illogical, because it isn't a nice area to look at. It's tower blocks and mid-rise and litter. But there's something about the community feel that's what I've always liked about it. And the fact that you see a lot of people that you know when you just go out somewhere. There's lots of people who you'll stop and just say hello to, and the friendly sense of it, which I guess people might not expect to find in London, particularly East London. 
So what about the areas? What are these areas? Well, they're not ghettos, they're not sinks, or they're not dumps. People were very, very resentful of those terms that were bandied around. But they are traditional working class areas that have undergone really massive change. Very high immigration, a lot of demolition, huge loss of traditional jobs, and quite significant differences between the north and south. So we had two areas in East London and two in northern cities where we found lots of contrast. Giving the simplest contrast, the north is less pressured than the south. <laughs> there aren't enough jobs for it to be very pressured, which is kind of an ironical um, situation. Um, but the similarities in terms of bringing up children in poor neighbourhoods were very, very striking. And these areas all had multitudes of problems, a range of 16 problems that are c covered in things like the English Housing Survey or other neighbourhood surveys or citizen panels, always show at roughly four times the average incidence, whichever of the measures you take. Um, so another mother from West City in East London, it's had its highs and its lows, it's been good and bad. The good experience was when I moved here, we had older people and they were very community minded. They'd watch out for your kids. This is um, a West African immigrant to the area. Now the people who've moved in are totally different. They just say hi. It used to be lovely around here with lovely flowers outside, but when it declined, it was just so many different people. You can't help that, but with so many people, there's no community spirit. I used to know the names of all my neighbors. People just seem to lock their doors and that's it. So we found a lot of a sense of dispossession by the immigrant communities as well as by the traditional white community in that incredible pace of change. So what about the 200 families that we spoke to? We had 50 in each area. They were mainly mothers, not because we set out for them to be mothers, but we kind of knew they would be because we decided to go for the most present parent. Um, they face many, many disadvantages personally with very low incomes, poor education, uh, minimal work, no work, or low paid work, and poor surrounding conditions. Obviously that didn't apply to all the families, but that was the pattern. And their lives were vastly complicated by low income. It was difficult to manage on so little money, given the pressures that they were constantly trying to handle. So getting their children into clubs so that they wouldn't just play out or just hang around the house. You have to pay, um, and you have to get out of the area. Um, sending the children to a local school or a better school further out of the area, another very difficult decision. Most parents decided to send their children to the local school because it felt safer because they were so scared of the area. They were so scared of the conditions surrounding the area that they preferred not to ship their children out because then during the day they wouldn't be quickly on call if anything went wrong. That sort of complication. Um, it was a mixture. There was about half and half lone parents and two parents. It was very ethnically mixed in the three neighbourhoods that were very ethnically mixed. Um, and it was about half and half mothers who worked and mothers who were at home, which over time did radically improve, it has to be said, although now um, there's been a big job loss in the kind of work that these mothers do and these families <laughs> depend on. And they're very dependent on local services, not just local social services, which most didn't depend on, not just the local benefit office, which about two-thirds in one way and another did, much more on local shops, local schools, local buses, because they weren't car owners and they didn't have any way of actually 
spreading beyond the neighbourhood um, for the services they needed as families. And that made them instinctive socialisers. Families with children are instinctive socialisers anyway, but if they're always together in a neighbourhood, then that guarantees that the bumping in that that mother talked about will become terribly important. That's the kind of familiarity that makes them feel okay about living in a bad neighbourhood. So one of the things that really, really helped parents <coughs> sorry, was Sure Start. So this was one of the parents who was trying to explain how she'd actually managed to overcome a lot of her particular difficulties in income education work and surrounding conditions through this amazing program, Sure Start. Yes, I was with them for over a year doing voluntary work, taking her children there before I worked for them. The voluntary work I did included boxing, the fitness side of things, and I did talks on how I got involved, on being a teen parent, because she was a teen mother, and getting into boxing, which she did because she had a very disturbed childhood and was a really, really rough teenager, and some clever youth worker got her into boxing classes. This is a mother. Um, and I ran a few behavioural courses and training classes for nursery stuff too. It's a really extraordinary story. The feedback was good. I was a single mum, always on the estate, going to lots of groups, and then doing voluntary work and talks, etc. And it was a big turnaround. It was a success to go from doing nothing, then to do all sorts of things, and then to sit in a room full of professionals and talk. It was a confidence boost. I always was confident, but I was defensive too. In other words, she was one of those got-attitude people. Um, I'm not so defensive now. I know that just because I live on a council estate and didn't work, I know now that I'm capable of something. Uh, I think that's a bit of an amazing statement, really. Um, so, if these parents are facing so many difficulties, what are their top worries? So, we asked them repeatedly over the interviews, you know, what's going well for them, what isn't going so well, what do they think are the top priorities, what would they do? We asked them what they would do if they were in charge. The top worry is money, they say. That came out top. And therefore, how they're going to survive, how they're going to get by, how they're going to meet the next bill. Um, and then their children's safety and happiness and opportunity. And I don't think they would put them as one higher than the other. It's just more of them immediately said money. Um, and they all, most of all, wanted their children to be happy, which is one reason why they worried much less about the standard of achievement of the school than whether the school welcomed them, made them feel secure as parents and looked after their children, controlled bullying, things like that. Thirdly, community and race relations. 90% of these mothers said that um, community mattered a lot, um, but only about half of them thought that they could actually see it. They were worried that community was something that was disappearing. And linked to that, they were worried about the very rapid change. And that really went across the different races that lived in the areas. Another huge worry was crime, drugs, bullying, and bad behavior. A lot of people say parents over-worry about crime and drugs. But if any of you buy Family Futures, you'll see the trajectory for drug sales and drug use in London and related drug crime. And it's just scary to actually see it um, down on paper, and that carried on with the fall in actual um, crime. The other thing that's a worry for them is not knowing who their neighbours are, or local links being broken, so wanting to know who your neighbour is, wanting to know that where you actually directly live is an okay place. We asked them whether they felt they had influence, and the majority said no, and whether this mattered, and the majority said yes. What they really wanted was voice, and interestingly, as the programmes went forward, 
um, under New Labour and people were given more chance to have a say, more chance in schools, more chance in um, New Deal for communities, more chance in Sure Start and so on. That actually made a real difference to how parents felt. Um, the local high school, now this is counter to that, um, <clears throat> is the worst school I've ever known. I'm trying to get him out of it. I, they don't want to know. They just don't want to know. He's badly behaved and he has learning difficulties. This is a boy who's now well into his teens and they don't help. So parents who have learning difficulties among their children, particularly dyslexia among boys, often face this really difficult situation as their kids get into their teens. I told them he needs help and they didn't want to know. So what happens is that at primary school there's this strong relationship with parents and then as the kids get older they resist parental involvement but the parents have kept them in the neighbourhood school. So the peer pressure on kids is huge so therefore there are lots of behavioural problems. The schools are really you know, in difficulty coping with that and parents are very much on the edge of it quite often. Um, so why does the government worry about this kind of thing? And although this government has said it doesn't want to pay attention to evidence, it just believes in principles, and although it's actually not announced any area-targeted programmes yet, I think it's only a matter of time before they creep out through these various um, things that are being brought out at the moment. The reason why governments worry about these areas, and certainly under the previous Conservative government over 20 years they worried a lot about it, is because when you're part of big, that should say big cities, not big cities, sorry, um, big cities with big populations, there are lots of risks in having areas that don't fit, that are very different, that are conspicuously more problematic. They're actually crowded and dense and inescapable. They're not stuck on the edge of a wasteland, they're actually part of the city, all four areas, generating very high costs and high dependence and high crime. So even though the crime rate has fallen significantly in these areas, I think it's still three times the national average. Um, but they also do have many eyesores and wasted resources, and governments are quick to recognise um, that areas very close to the city centre are potential assets. Um, particularly if they become increasingly unpopular because it means shops close, well that means there's a building that could be used for something else. And government holds primary responsibility for all the major infrastructure of these neighbourhoods, whether it's transport, schools, health, roads, open space. You know, there, there is a huge bank of um, government liabilities which potentially are assets. And there's a long history of action in cities, and in case people think it only began 10, 20 years ago, I mean, in the late 19th century, we were already massively intervening um, to try and sort out the problems of cities. And governments do re respond to pressure because they care about voting, and although the voters aren't locked up in these areas, the problems are, and the rest of the voters don't like problems. So there, there just is a pressure of problems and if the government cares a bit or if some members of the government care a bit then that tends to prevail. So this, these are two examples of where action is needed and where sometimes it happens. There's a playground there but my daughter doesn't play there as it's not safe. She just goes to school, it's not even safe to take the lift in their building. There's all sorts of people around we don't know. They clean the lifts regularly but they pee in them, not meaning the caretakers do, just people who use them. <laughs> 
They're coming to the stairwells to drink and do drugs at night. The stuff fits the security doors and it gets broken regularly. Usually it's the outsiders doing this. The drugs and fighting worry me because they're boys. I feel like putting bars, meaning her sons, her own kids, are boys. I, there's a lot more worry about boys from this point of view. I feel like putting bars on the windows and not letting them out. I don't want to be here when they're older. I want to be a lot further away. I think drug testing in school is a brilliant idea as it scares the kids into not doing it. There's a lot of support for intervening to stop um, risks to children and bad behavior. Um, so what seven main themes emerged as what the parents most wanted to tell us about and were most worried about? I haven't got time to go into any of them, but the community issue, the schools issue, space for children, the business of letting off steam, crime, health, health and the link to really serious environmental pressures, work and training and housing. And we have seven chapters in Family Futures covering each of those topics. Um, just to illustrate how seriously parents have to worry, the council keeps selling off the land and the property there's no place. They're not giving great big areas over to football pitches anymore. This is in East London. It's all been built up so children have a lot less. The parents thought that children today had a lot less in spite of, in many ways, them having a lot more, which I thought was very tragic, really. Um, so what did they think were the biggest gaps and the most urgent needs? Top, more for children and young people. Not more money, but more for children and young people. Second, meeting points and social spaces. Third, secondary schools keeping parents involved as they had been in primary schools. Fourth, training so that people could get into work. It was quite remarkable in all the areas where a special program for community-based training had been set in place, how people accessed work on the back of it. There were lots and lots of examples of that, as you'll see if you read that part of the book. Community brokering, by which I mean intervening, where there's this potential for really serious ethnic misunderstanding and ethnic conflict, which three, if not four of the areas, because even the all-white area had an all-Asian, well, virtually all-Asian girls' school within it, a secondary school, and there was a lot of tension around that. And nobody bothers to explain to people what's going on or why that's happening. Um, affordable housing management so that the areas kept clean and repaired and on-site human faces that you can go to and ongoing security. So no point jumping in, sorting out a crime problem and then disappearing again. You have to just be there all the time. It's funny actually because I was going to the shops a couple of weeks ago and these two community police officers were talking to this boy and they knew him by name. His friend was like, ah, you mug, how can you let them know your name? And I just thought, look at these children, they're so young. And I thought, look at these police, they're becoming familiar at least and they know their names. You know what I mean? So they must be little tearaways for them to be recognized by the police. And his friend was like laughing at him. And the police said to him, why are you not at school? And he said, oh, I'm going there now. So they said, okay, jump in the car and we'll drop you off, which was just a brilliant little um, response. And the parents loved that. Um, so what are the big lessons? The big lessons are that families are vulnerable. Families are always vulnerable, even well-heeled. And we did have a few well-heeled families, or certainly educated and upwardly mobile families in, in the 200. But they're always searching for opportunities. So even the very, very most disarrayed family from one of the northern areas, um, who had three boys on the run from the police for serious 
armed offences and two in clink already and three younger children was desperate for her children to do okay and also to help the ones that were on the run. Um, you know, I mean, I know that sounds very contradictory, but it's important to kind of be able to absorb that juggling that people are doing. Um, and the wider infrastructure of support, therefore, prevents poor areas and poor families from falling off the edge. So that family, we asked the mother what helped her most, who was the person she could most confide in. She said her support worker, which I thought was really interesting. And that means that you have to have this local support, but if you don't have the state backing something that's collective for everybody and shared, then people aren't actually going to be, managed, going, going to be able to manage because complex urban communities so, so rarely self-organise. Schools don't happen because parents in poor areas want schools. Of course they want schools, but they don't know how to set them out. Of course they want to live in clean blocks. They don't have authority as tenants to actually sort out the blocks. So, so you have to think about how you make poor areas work in relation to the really complex society in which we live and the services that everybody else gets and is entitled to. So probably in a way, the feeling that somebody thinks it's worth putting money into the area, yeah, that was one of the things that really helped, because the question was what really helped. I suppose because it's recognised that there are problems and you can't just let them sort themselves out. So this mother articulated very well that you don't just hope that problems will sort themselves out or go away. We have lots of examples of that across the United States in their inner city ghettos. Um, and we have quite a lot of examples of it in our very neglected areas too. I like the job. This is a mother who works and it'll show you how crucial the hand-holding and the wider structure is to a young woman like this who has two children and who really is determined to make a go of things. I like the job. It's just a cleaning job. I've got a lovely day ward. She works in a hospital. It's so clean and nice and everybody's nice, but personally I think I'm capable of doing more. I feel a bit frustrated. And they can tell me, they can tell that because I keep applying for jobs here and there. They're saying, oh, don't worry, something will break soon. And I think I'm capable of doing something better. I tried, I wanted to do an access test. I always pass and get admission, but I don't have the money to go. And so this mother is blocked. She's blocked by two things. She's blocked by not having fees, but she's also blocked by having gone to a sharp lender when she was in the private rental sector to pay her rent. And that debt had mounted to the point where she, she couldn't escape, which was really very terrible. So what are the five key lessons from all of this? Um, pooling scarce resources is vital to low-income families. They're there with very low incomes and very few amenities around them. Getting together matters, so local links and local support are the lifelines that they're looking for. Secondly, there's a strong need for security and enforcement in an area where a lot of disarrayed people, is a sort of phrase I use, are actually pushed in there by social housing allocations and by um, the release of offenders and by all sorts of other factors, which it would be quite tricky to go into in, in a short presentation like this, means that you've got to have local management of conditions. If you have local management of conditions, you can actually contain those problems. If you don't have local management, then, as happened to us when we began the study, you'll be warned by social services in one of the boroughs, well, they do rehouse paedophiles in this area, so just be warned and expect trouble around that. And I just thought 
that is a big indictment of policy that we have to get it from a senior civil, not senior civil service, senior local authority social worker. We can't find anybody in the area to steer through that problem. And then cultural divisions are real, and there are big conflicts over resources building up around those cultural divisions. And so there's a chronic need for more bridge building between communities. And as David suggested at the beginning, you can't do that unless you talk to people, unless you're down there actually communicating. Fourthly, the proactive parents in the study, this was a big point that Helen Wilmot, who couldn't be here, um, made, do okay. I'm not saying they do well, I'm not saying they get high pay or good jobs, but they cope very well. But the unconfident parents, who for whatever reason have been knocked, struggle and they need support. They all need support, but they particularly need support. And finally, building luxury blocks in low-income areas, because there's bits of land there and because they're near the city, alongside deep poverty, does not create mixed communities. So some of the parents make quite hilarious statements about... Um, well, I feel sorry for those yuppies. I mean, nobody told them to walk across the road and look what it's like over here. Um, that sort of thing. And so you need a more proximate and more harmonious mix. You can't pay for low-cost housing by selling luxury housing next door to it because you have to put guards around the luxury housing and nobody... So well, maybe it's one of the quotes I've used. Um, oh, yeah, it might be. Um, it's cleaner, and the housing market means that house prices have gone up. So people need more money to live here. So more with money live here. This is one of the areas which is kind of low-level gentrified, as I call it, and spend on their properties and gardens and take a pride in where they live. So the families really like that. It kind of pushes up the value of the shops, and so you can actually get better produce in the shops, but it doesn't go off the wall. Um, the other one, they're rejuvenating the estate now, new doors and windows and kitchens, and rewiring upgrades and updating what we've got, not leaving it. It makes a difference to you wanting to stay and raise your kids. If things improve, you feel confident to stay. So when things are being done and make a place better, it, it works better. But if you put in a block that, for example, has a private place, place space for that block within the courtyard, people know it's there and know they can't access it. So did the areas get better? Overall, the parents definitely thought the areas got better. There were very few parents who thought, no, these areas are as bad as they were or getting worse. Very, very few. Um, I'd say about 35% or 40% thought overall positive, and the biggest positive changes that they all recognised were improvements in the local environment, sure start, the decent homes programme, which was a repair programme for council housing, so these programmes massively benefited from that and the link between the areas and the schools. The biggest negatives were, ironically, the programmes ending and crime, which was still a great fear. And if it's three times the crime level, which is much better than four times, you can see why parents are still worried. The mixed views were very much the parents say the job is not finished, but the majority found more positives than negatives. So much has happened. The renovations around the place, the flat and the park, redesigned, transport has really improved. Think about the children, the people who work now. You feel so happy attracting people. The area's generally nicer. The houses on the main bus routes are done up. I can see where the money's gone. Lots of courses for community groups and grants. Positive feel. I'd say more people are working now. I notice it from people I know and seeing the numbers going to work in the mornings. 
Well, you get families who never worked, and now that cycle is changing, which, of course, tragically, over the last couple of years, is now slipping off, particularly uh, in the north. And just to end, this is Catherine, the very first researcher, um, who's now the proud mother of these four. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's raised enormous issues, and, and the first reflection on, on, on this um, uh, is going to come from uh, Margaret Hodge, who's been responsible for almost all the um, areas that, um, that of, of, of public policy that have been raised. She spent 20 years working uh, as a councillor, up to being leader of the council in Islington. It must have felt more like 200. Uh, then she worked... Uh, for the Labour government in, uh, uh, if, if one rearranged the order, it would be a whole life sequence from uh, concern for children, schooling, lifelong learning, further and higher education, employment, work, ended, work and pensions with culture and trade and industry thrown in. But that wasn't exactly the order, so um, uh, it doesn't quite fit that. But perhaps the most important thing that many people will uh, uh, remember and celebrate is the number 16,555, which was uh, twice the majority of the previous election uh, achieved fighting off the challenge from Nick Griffin and the British National Party in her barking constituency. But uh, now she's chair of the Public Accounts Committee uh, with uh, more responsibilities than that position has ever had uh, before, uh, one might think. But she's going to uh, follow on with some uh, reflections on uh, family futures. Can I wickedly sit here? Yes, of I'm course so you can. I'm so sure that I don't think anybody will see me if I'm behind that great big podium. Um, and I'm going to probably sit down. Can I? Yes, yes, can I? Good. Is that all right? Good. Um, well, first of all, Anne, brilliant, as per usual. And, you know, well done to Anne, Helen, and Rosie, because I think uh, I've had a chance to look at the book, and there's an absolute wealth of uh, material gathered over a long period, which is really, you know, rich. That mere fact you stuck at it for a decade is brilliant. And I think we can all reflect on that now uh, and think through what you found, what works to uh, improve the lives of families and improve communities. And as I did read through it, a lot resonated with my experience of uh, particularly listening to, talking to, and working with families in Barking and Dagenham. And I think it also really reflected actually quite a lot of what lots of us knew when we were in government and formed the basis of lots of things we tried to do, some of them more successful than others. And I just have to say to Anne, we didn't worry so much about the assets and the eyesores. We, we were really driven by a sense of trying uh, to uh, promote equality in whatever way we do, and that's what I hope underpinned the Labour government. What I'm going to do very, very briefly is, is focus a little bit on what I think your book says about my, uh, in relation to my experiences in Barking, and then a little bit some ideas about my experiences as a minister. 
And I want to start by saying it's really important for families to enjoy a sense of belonging to and an identity with the place where they live. I think that's hugely important. And feeling a sort of affection for or pride in your community and where you bring up your family, all that really, really matters. And if you're at the bottom of the pile, a strong community is really ever more important because it does provide that stability and support which just makes life that little bit easier and better if you're struggling either because of the lack of money or the lack of opportunity. But if we all accept that as being important, I think we've got to face up to a few difficult truths and some unpalatable choices as policymakers. When I, and I, this really brings me to my Barking and Dagenham experience. When I first became the MP in, two, in 1994, it was an all-white community, and I'd never met so many great-grandmothers who lived within 10 minutes walking distance of their great-grandchildren. We had a paternalistic council who gave everybody their housing, and when you behaved yourself and had your couple of kids, you were moved from a high-rise flat to a house and garden, and we had a paternalist employer, Fords, who ensured that you had a job and picked you up probably when you were 14 or 15 from school. That has all suddenly and radically transformed and over the time that I've been here. The jobs have gone. Fords used to employ 36,000, 40,000 people. They now employ 4,000, very few from, from the borough. Uh, and we have a, a population where, uh, because they never had to, they never had great aspirations. It didn't matter if they got their GCSEs and went on to university. They never had great qualifications. They didn't stay on. We had the right to buy, which completely transformed the local housing situation. People bought their homes, sold on or let on to uh, hard-pressed inner London councils, and that changed the composition from being a white community to a multi-racial uh, community. And we had a very, very poor public service infrastructure. Whatever I touch, it doesn't work as well as it does in the area where I was a councillor and where I live in Islington. And I think my first reflection on that is for families at the bottom, all that was particularly tough because they were completely locked into the situation, which was not of their making. They couldn't afford to buy their house under the right to buy. And so they watched their communities changing, they watched the shops changing, they watched the schools changing, and they felt completely powerless to do anything about it. And I think any of us, if we saw this rapid transition, would feel uh, the same sense of insecurity at change that they felt. And it's very easy for the rest of us who do have much greater control over our lives to be critical of people's reaction to that. And I think you've just got to understand it. And what I always say is, these families who may have ended up voting BMP until the last election were driven not by apathy, but by anger. And we have to understand that. And we also have to understand their aspirations, where they are at. They want to turn the clock back to the old community where the great-grandmother lived within 10 minutes of, of where they lived. They maybe don't want to turn the clock back on things like health and safety legislation, which makes jobs a bit easier, or perhaps women going out and having a good time at night, which they also like. But they do want to turn the clock back on their community. Uh, and the, the other truth was that the recently arrived migrants find their community elsewhere 
was my experience, and from then, from then where they live. So black churches, if you go, I would visit black churches at you know, 2 o'clock on a Monday afternoon, find 500 people there. And that is really where a lot of the community support and interdependence come from. Or I would go to an opening of a, a GP surgery, expect to find a family there, and find 500 of the local Asian communities all locked into the local health economy uh, coming together. So the community goes elsewhere. Uh, and there's also a very complex dynamic, which I think Anne touched on, which goes on, which is as each newly arrived community settles, they want to turn the, uh, they want, they become part of those people who don't want to uh, have the, the most recently accepted as part of their community. So the Asians resented the Africans, who then resented the Eastern Europeans, and so it goes on. And we found a lot of them supporting the extreme right, even from very different ethnic backgrounds. Um, I accept that this is a transition community, you know, that it is changing, but it was very tough for us in those days when we were fighting the BMP because everything was seen through this vortex of the impact of, of migration. So what were our policy responses? What worked for us? And I think the most important thing that I felt from Anne's work, which I think is hugely important, is this listening, listening. And I think politicians are bad at it, academics are bad at it, we're a lot, all of us are very bad at it. You really have to go out and listen. And that's how you start rebuilding trust. And if you build trust, then you can start building uh, communities. So I never went out and preached. I always went out and listened, as did all my team. The other thing which is interesting is so much of what people are concerned about is local. They care about the big issues. They care about their jobs and the immigration and the benefits. But actually, what they really care about is what's happening on their doorstep. So they care passionately about the bit of antisocial behavior or uh, the reciting of a bus stop, or the quality of the pavements, or the fact, really important, which Anne picked up, of nowhere to go, no places to go, and things to do for young people. Politics really is very local, and it doesn't start at Westminster and Whitehall, it's there. Uh, and I, th I think the other thing we found is that you can capture, Anne says it somewhere in the book, you can capture occasional events to build strong communities. And I think one of my greatest joys was uh, having a St. George's Day celebration in the middle of the most BNP sort of ward in my uh, uh, patch, where we had black, white, uh, every, every ethnic minority, every culture, to coming together to celebrate in a very different way what would have traditionally been an exclusive rather than an inclusive uh, occasion. And then the other thing I felt was very important is leadership really counts. I'm not sure that that's something that was captured in this book as much, but leadership at all levels. I've spent so much of my time trying to seek out, well, who could help lead this little bit or, do, uh, or lead this little bit, bring this group of people together? Who can I call on or who's, who's around who can lead this? And I think leadership is hugely important. But confront, we have got some difficult issues that we can have to confront. There's a strong feeling in these changing communities that families don't feel life is fair that they don't get a fair access to public resources, particularly where they're limited and they have to be rationed. And I think it's a jolly tough issue, but we've all got to start uh, thinking about it. Because if you can, you know, people, everybody responds to this idea that if you put something in, then you deserve to get something out. It's Anne's responsibility agenda. But we don't actually follow that through in the way we allocate scarce resources, particularly where it's not a universal service, so whether it's benefits or whether it's housing. 
And we talk about strong communities, but actually on housing, we house people according to need. We don't house people uh, so that they can be near their great-grandmothers. So I think those are issues. The other thing I wanted to say is schools. and talks in the thing about segregation. And there are hugely difficult conflicts there between trying to get integrated schools because communities do become segregated and giving individuals choice in communities. So I think there are some really tough issues. I want to, in my last two minutes, talk about the obvious at the national level. The obvious is that if you abandon public investment in struggling communities in the name of the big society, it's a recipe for further decline and tougher challenges for the families living there. Uh, and I think the cuts that we're facing will mean that we're turning the clock back on neighbourhoods where families are struggling. And that's just hideously depressing. Equally, I think the heavy hand of big government, for which we were responsible, prescribing from Whitehall or Westminster, won't result in what are lasting improvements for poor families. So we do need investment, but we need an investment that supports, encourages and facilitates. Uh, and we also need invest investment in a strongly funded non-statutory sector which can mediate and facilitate working from the basis of independence but funded. The other thing is I think all what governments have done from Heseltine through to Brown through to probably what they'll do this time round is we always put money onto funding physical facilities, never putting enough money into people. So we get lots of beautiful buildings and they're important, they matter in poor neighbourhoods that you've got a sort of haven, of safe haven that you can go to. But it's the investment in people that really makes the difference. So the sure start community development which empowers parent mums who've probably never done anything in their life to grow, to train and to move into work. The lone parents into work project we had, the extended schools program, all those that are people-based investments are hugely important. We never give, nothing's got a quick fix, we never give people time to actually see their policies through and I think the imperative of successful politics doesn't fit with the imperatives of successful public policy. And all these issues, supporting mental illness, working with families, early intervention, they all take time and we judge them too soon. I think we I think a mistake we made in Labour was we tried to universalise too much and we probably, I think it's particularly about Shore Start, if we'd really focused on getting it right in the poorest areas, we might have actually embedded it in a way that meant that the Tory-led government now couldn't undo it. My area is facing 25% cuts in its Shore Start programmes and that means all that good people stuff is going. I think we have to understand the complexities of what we're doing. You know, we always think there's a cheap magic bullet, uh, and uh, uh, we, we never really uh, accept the, the complexity of what it is. And I think now, as we retrench financially, there is just no thought being given to how if you cut in one place, it affects something in another. The classic being this week, the sort of housing benefit cut, which will lead to homelessness. Probably they'll come to Barking, which will lead to, because it's a cheaper area in which to, uh, to live. And that, again, will create difficulties for us in community cohesion. None of us here are probably in, at the bottom. None of us are the families that Anne interviewed. And there's always a danger that we'll patronise, and there's a real danger that we impose our values and our attitudes on others. Um, and I think the only answer I can give, the real, real lesson of my 
20, last 20 years embarking, the time before in Islington, is you've really just got to listen. You've got to respond to people, and you've got to start from people where they're at. And if you do that, you just have that little bit of chance that you may lift them out of poverty. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. The, the second commentary is uh, coming from Jane Wolfogel, who's Professor of Social Work and Public Affairs at uh, Columbia University School of Social Work. She's taken on the mantle of Ed Morrow and President Roosevelt. They reported on and supported Britain in the Second World War. She's done so in the book Britain's War on Poverty. Only yesterday, um, the statue of Ronald Reagan was unveiled in, in, in London. Um, I think many of us could choose other presidents, so soon as he uh, uh, embodied in a statue. Um, uh, but he famously said uh, about the war on poverty, we lost. Uh, Jane uh, showed that uh, it's not easy, but uh, it can be won. Jane. Um, thank you, David. Um, I feel like I have um, several strikes against me because I'm one of those um, anti-social social scientists who doesn't talk to real people. So after these two fabulous presentations, I feel like it's going to be kind of dry. And um, these are, these are um, tough acts to follow, um, both Anne and, um, and Margaret. So I want to start by congratulating Anne and her co-authors on a splendid book, which I've read several times now and have really enjoyed every time around. So I was asked to talk about lessons from Family Futures, which I'm happy to do. Um, so as David said, uh, from 1999, when uh, Blair made that remarkable commitment to end child poverty up until last year, I was very closely following the Labor government's anti-poverty campaign. And I'll remind you that it included a host of measures to promote work and make work pay, uh, measures to raise incomes for families with children, even if parents weren't working, and then so many investments uh, in children that I could hardly fit them on one slide. Uh, paid maternity leave doubled, paternity leave for the first time, the right to request part-time and flexible working, universal preschool for three and four-year-olds, preschool for disadvantaged two-year-olds, sure start, the reductions in primary school class sizes, uh, the literacy and numeracy hours, extended schools, and so much more. Uh, I feel like I have to mention these things because we're at risk of forgetting them, and I don't think we should, um, because it really was remarkable. So what happened in terms of child poverty? Well, as I think most of you know, uh, Blair and Brown didn't meet their goal of having relative child poverty, uh, but they did actually cut child poverty by more than half if you measure it in absolute terms, the way we do in the United States. And this is remarkable because the reduction in child poverty continued even into the recession, when of course child poverty in the US was rising. So I have this lovely graph that I put together with the aid of Tim Smeeting, who's Mr. International Comparisons. This is the official British absolute child poverty rate. I haven't done anything with the statistics, and it's the official US child poverty rate. Tim and I haven't done anything with that, except put them on the same graph. And so you see in the red line the sort of gentle decline in child poverty that we had in the 90s 
with welfare reform, the EITC, the very strong economy. And then in the blue line, you see the plummeting of child poverty uh, in this past decade when it's cut by more than half in absolute terms. And you see child poverty even falling into the beginning of the recession because the benefits were rising faster uh, and tax credits were rising faster than the cost of living because cost of living, of course, sort of stagnated in the recession. So I just have to show this because I want to be sure that we remember uh, what was happening uh, over the last decade. So this is the period of time that Anne's book uh, covers, and this is a kind of top-down view, you know, and it's the view that I have looking at statistics and looking at official reports, talking to policymakers. And, you know, I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground with child poverty about what happened. But on other aspects of the child poverty agenda, the evidence has been more mixed. So, for example, Sure Start, which we've already talked a lot about tonight, um, you know, the early studies found some negative effects, and then the later studies found more positive effects. And so we're kind of left with being not quite sure about Sure Start, what the record was. Um, another example, uh, child care, you know, something that I do a lot of work on. We know the availability greatly increased, but, you know, what about quality? What about affordability? It's not so clear. And then education, there have been bitter debates about whether achievement rose over this period and whether achievement gaps narrowed. And there are these dueling statistics. People have dueling reports. Um, so here, you know, I find the evidence in Family Futures so helpful because it tells us actually from the perspective of real families what worked and what didn't work. You know, these sort of familiar policy initiatives that those of us in social policy feel like we know <coughs> a lot about. We get a whole new vantage point from this book. Um, so let me start with Sure Start and Child Care. It's absolutely clear from the book that parents see Sure Start as an important resource. It's a support to families as well as a service for children. The message from the families could not be clearer. Uh, they'd like to see Sure Start maintained. They'd like to see it extend. Their main complaint is they, that it drops off when you've got older children. Some of them are getting some help from Sure Start even when their children are, en are entering school. Uh, even though it's supposed to be only for preschool kids, but they'd like to see that kind of model extended even further for families with older kids, especially those with special needs. Um, the not-so-good news around childcare is that parents in the book are still reporting problems obtaining affordable childcare so that they can work. So the message there is also absolutely clear that families need more subsidies, not fewer. Um, around schools, uh, as I said, there is a disagreement among academics and policymakers about what's happened with schools over the last decade. Have they been improving? Have they not? I think they have been improving, and I think achievement gaps have been narrowing. It, in that regard, it's interesting to see that the families clearly say that the schools have gotten better, clearly say that, um, although they also say there's room for improvement. As Anne pointed out, there are problems around services for children with special needs and for these disaffected adolescents. They really feel like once the kids get to secondary school and they tune out, the schools are happy to see them go. Um, and so there hasn't been as much progress made in secondary school as there was in primary school. So I learned a lot from Family Futures about the domains that I don't know as much about, the areas that I don't work on. So things like housing, crime, neighborhood services. Uh, as Anne said, these are a big aspect of the book. But actually, the biggest surprise for me was about health. Um, 
There's a wonderful chapter about health in the book, and families talk about the role that was played by their GP. And over and over again, you hear the story about, I was, I was feeling kind of down, I wasn't doing so well, I went in to see my GP, and they really made me feel better. They got me going, they got me laughing, we had a good chat. Um, uh, and it, it's, you can, it's clearly not just about physical health, but it's also about mental health. You know, these families have lots of mental health problems. Depression is pretty widespread. And the GPs are playing a really important frontline role. Um, you know, obviously there are some problems, but families are mostly happy with the health services and they clearly very highly value them. So, you know, the message for me is that as the government's thinking about expanding parent support services, and this was a big thrust of the Allen Review that, that Anne was talking about and also the Frank Field Review, it seems to me that these GPs, as well as Sure Start and local schools, are promising settings to locate those kinds of parent support services. So just to wrap up, um, the three biggest policy lessons that I drew from Family Futures, but there's lots more there, are the importance of maintaining Sure Start and expanding childcare subsidies. That comes through loud and clear. Uh, second, the important role played by the local schools, and in particular, the need for more services for special needs students and adolescents. And then third, you know, the surprising finding for me was the role of the local health services and the way that they could be used as a platform for parent support. But as I said, those are just the three lessons that I drew. There's lots more in the book. Um, I've read it a couple of times now and enjoyed it thoroughly every time. It w I could hardly restrain myself from reading quotes out tonight, but I thought, well, I knew Anne was going to read quotes, and I thought, I can't be reading quotes as well. But I've actually got their little bits of paper in my copy of the book with all my favorite quotes marked. Um, so I really encourage you to read the book for yourselves, and especially if there's anybody here from the government or in a policy position, you should definitely read this book because you'll learn a lot about families that you don't know if you live in our uh, anti-social social science world. Uh, so again, congratulations to Anne on a fantastic book. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, the third uh, reflector or commentator on it is uh, Catherine Rake, who's uh, for seven years was uh, chief executive of the Fawcett Society and uh, since uh, 2009 has been uh, chief executive of the Family and Parenting Institute. I find it very difficult to introduce Catherine because even after a decade, I feel a sense of hurt and loss that she left the Department of Social Policy, which was um, most regrettable, but um, she has gone on to um, different things. Um, uh, whether they're higher, um, she will tell us. Uh, Catherine. Um, so, um like Margaret, I'm about as tall when I stand up as when I sit down, so it's probably best for me to be sat down here. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be back. This is actually the first time formally I've been back at the LSE, so obviously the hurt ran deep. Um, but thank you so much for getting me back after a decade. Um, the LSE has clearly gone on to much grander things. Um, we used to be a rather dusty lecture theatres um, in my memory, um, but um, it's obviously gone on to much grander things. Um, I suppose um, I'm also very delighted to be here at the launch of this book, and, and like the others, I really enjoyed reading it. I think the things that I pull from it are both that it's very grounded, 
um, in the reality of families, but also reflects how grounded, grounded families themselves are in local reality. And I think you're such an important reminder, both about the physical structure, but also about how important those local services are to, to families and how, if there is a differential cut according to poor neighbourhoods, how um, deeply that is going to be felt by uh, families. And we have to watch that as it rolls out. I think that there's families' voices come through very, very clearly and, and lots of evidence of very astute listening. Um, and one of the things that I found particularly moving, actually, reading the book is uh, the tales of aspirations. We all hold huge aspirations as parents. And I think the tales of aspiration uh, and the challenges that uh, face those <coughs> aspirations, I think, come, come across uh, very um, remarkably. I also think there's lots of tales of resilience within the book as well. Um, and although it's often shaky, I think it comes through very real and tangi tangibly. And in a sense, if we were to allow people to develop the resilience they really want to, then we'd be doing a good job. The only problem I have is with the book's title. Um, because in a sense, it's not about family futures at all. It's actually a snapshot of things that um, look now very historical. And I suppose um, I thought what I could do is reflect a little bit on where we are currently and what's changed. And clearly, and very obviously, we are experiencing an enormous economic downturn. And I think that that's feeling, being felt very dramatically by families themselves. There's been a disproportionate impact of the tax benefit reforms on families, especially those with young children, especially large families, um, many of whom will be living in your areas, especially on those families um, working few hours trying to combine work and family life. Um, and so they're feeling very much, I think, the sharp end of that economic downturn. And combined with that, obviously, we've got rising living costs, and we also know there's a differential inflation rate affecting families. Um, so the costs of childcare have gone up above inflation, um, and the costs of bringing up a child have gone up above inflation. So I think that there's a double uh, whammy, if you like, of um, both economic downturn and rising living costs, and families really are at the pincer, in the pincer movement between those two things. Um, but in a sense, I think all, almost more destructive uh, 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 still is actually the degree of uncertainty that families are living with at the moment. And I think that there is this sense that uh, we don't know how long this downturn is going to last. Um, we're very clear about the level of cuts made, but one of the things that we're continually asking government to do is produce an agenda going forward, actually to offer families some reassurance about what the offer might be around the corner. Uh, when, uh, when, we do, when we do reach economic recovery. So I think that the financial constraints are obviously very, very severe, but the uncertainty it's created um, has um, made that um, more difficult to cope with. And of course, the psychological impact of people of economic uncertainty on their ability to have the relationships they want, their ability to be the parents they want, that's where that is going to be felt. And I think uh, we need to be very attentive to this. Um, but amongst this picture of change, there's also remarkable continuity, and I've now had the uh, honour uh, of working with governments of very different uh, persuasions over the years, and one of the things that I'm struck by, actually, in this kind of past year of working with the coalition, about how some things are remarkably, absolutely the same as they ever were. Um, so government still seems to be populated by sharp-suited uh, men in their 20s who don't seem to have any clue about how the world's work, let alone how you might run an organisation and um, come up with ideas which um, there are very short answers to, but one has 
chance to couch them. And that I, was characteristic of the Labour government as it is of the Conservative government. Um, I think that the desire to affect change is still as passionately felt. Uh, and the frustration that actually you can't pull a lever in Whitehall and things happen on the ground uh, is still there. Uh, and the impatience, I think, of governments is still very apparent, the kind of ridiculously fast cycle one is constantly being asked to work on. Um, and also the desire, I think, to find you know, s simple solutions to ultimately very complex problems. Um, the problem of you know, trying to add up across uh, Whitehall the impact on real families, I think the government is still struggling with. So, you know, amongst all of this change, um, the, the world of policymaking remains uh, remarkably uh, similar, even if the content of it is different, the actual process remains remarkably similar. Um, so I think um, what I wanted to finish with, really, was a sort of sense of how we're going to take this um, forward and what our duties are uh, in these very difficult times towards families. And clearly, as a charity, we hold a very strong duty to our family beneficiaries. But I also think that the Academy has a very strong duty, uh, as do uh, politicians of all persuasions going forward, civil society, all of us. Um, and I think the, the duties actually are written out in this book, and I'm just going to refresh them for the changed environment. I think the, the first is that we must absolutely ensure that these voices are con continue to be heard so that the real lived impact of these changes is understood um, by policymakers and that they understand how their policies actually do add together and affect uh, families' real lived circumstances. I think we've got to um, create, continue to create solutions and try to set an agenda, even in challenging times. In fact, I think we're under more of an obligation to do that in challenging times. And I think that there are some um, signals of how we might want to move forward with this. The first is that actually cure of the issues that you talk about um, and is incredibly expensive but prevention is much cheaper and I think if we can use this as an opportunity to do more work on the preventative side and less on the cure side then it will be an opportunity well used and in a sense you tell that tale um, through the what you call helping hands which is actually bringing together a set of services to enable people to move from one place to another and into work typically um, where um, they can actually begin to be helped into, a, into finding their own solutions. So more prevention, less cure is one. I think the other thing that I was very struck with um, uh, in reading the book is actually about using the resources we have and the infrastructure we have already more effectively. And we're going to be forced to do this. And I think we need to think about that um, uh, and how we do that more effectively. And what comes through very, very powerfully, I think, in the book is the role of schools in their local communities. And I think using schools and using the networks of health practitioners that we already have, where there's an enormous investment of current funds, and actually thinking about their role in promoting uh, this kind of social change um, that we're talking about, I think is, uh, has to be part of the key to, to, the, to the solution key to the solution, that's what I meant, key to the problem, <laughs> solving the problem. Uh, and the final thing that I think uh, comes, uh, comes the final, final duty we have and the final possibility we have, which I think is also inspired by the book, is actually about swimming with the tide and working where there are forces for positive change. And I think if there's one message that we take from this 
book. It's that none of us has the solutions individually, um, but hopefully together. So certainly Whitehall doesn't have the solutions. Communities alone don't have the solutions, and I think you're very clear about the fact that communities left alone aren't going to be able to recreate it. Uh, local authorities don't have the solutions. The charitable sec sector doesn't have the solutions. Business don't have the solutions alone. But I think that coming together in partnership has to be part of um, our picture of, of positive uh, change and I think that that will take us to the place which ultimately this book leads us to which is working with people as active citizens uh, who are wanting to create and co-create their own destiny thank you thank you thank you very much indeed we've got uh, 15 or 20 minutes for questions discussion uh, there's microphones either side um, uh, any 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 comments questions including from sharp suited men in their 20s um, especially, especially um, you haven't got a suit but you can still um, ask a question if you like to put your hands up uh, right Oh, hi, good evening. Um, my name is William Wong. I, uh, just picking up the point raised by Jane earlier, uh, the NHS turned 63 today. We should all be very proud. But also particularly on the issue of mental health, um, I picked up from some of the uh, narratives uh, Anne was referring to. But I'm very interested in, in your uh, extended 8 to 10 year study, whether you found any correlation between mental health issues within families and the rising knife and gun crimes. Now, I don't know whether any of you have seen the, the recent Channel 4 series called 24 Hours in A&E. I think it was a couple of weeks ago there was an episode on uh, these youth gang warfare, not only happening on the streets in the middle of the night, went all the way into the waiting rooms at, at the King's College Hospital. And a gang wanted to break through security and try to finish the victim off in the ICU. Uh, to, to me, it just sounds horrendous. But of course, these are just the symptoms. What we want, as you say, is to spot problems very early on to prevent them. I just wonder whether you've sort of seen anything that you could perhaps share with us. Thank okay, you. thank you. We'll just take two more over there um, together um, uh, and then come back to that. Hi, uh, my name is Alison Reniff. Um, I have a background in housing. Um, I guess I really struggle with the search because I kind of think it's potentially highly dubious ethically because I think in a way the solutions are very simple. It's about money and it's about a more equal society. And by focusing, by almost taking the poverty as a given and looking at the other things that help, it's, it's like trying to find a magic bullet that will keep poor people well behaved reasonably healthy and out of, you know, so we don't have to worry about them. And although money doesn't do everything, neither does any of the interventions that, that, that are offered. Um, and in the States, for example, there was research done that gave families the amount of money that would have been invested in a Sure Start program directly to them, and the research found that they had just the same kinds of positive outcomes. And I think that's where the research needs to go. It needs to be consistently saying that the problem here is poverty. It's not whether you know, we have a short start program. It's the fact that these, this is a very unequal society. And these problems will carry on and on and on until we give people more money. OK. Uh, gentleman, second row. 
Thanks. Um, Jane touched on the statistics about numbers of children who came out of poverty during Labour's time in government. And we know that those are based on different, in, different numbers, but hundreds of thousands, depending on the particular indicators you look, like, look at. And I just wondered, Anne, from your perspective, at the family level, at the qualitative level, whether the concept of a child coming out of poverty resonates, whether, that means, whether you saw that, and, and if you did, what it looked like. Okay, um, can we, can, can, Anne, would you like to start with the second question, because that's, uh, and we'll come back to the mental health issues and uh, issues you've raised. But, but um, I don't disagree that money matters, in fact I flagged up that it was the very top problem that the parents raised. And I don't disagree that not having poor people would make for a much, 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 much better society and would certainly make family life a lot less stressed and strained. Uh, we were starting from a real situation in which, one, there are lots of poor areas and two, there are lots of poor families living in them. And as David suggested, it's very hard <coughs> to actually capture quite what it's like to bring up a child in a poor neighbourhood unless you actually ask the parents. So we had very strong ethical rules, if you want to talk afterwards to Catherine Mumford, who's here, uh, because we were involved in drawing them up, um, to make sure that the parents wanted to talk to us. And one of the first things we discovered, that parents really do want to tell you about what it's like bringing up their children and what problems they face. And they certainly do not think that cash poverty is their only problem. So I flagged up place-based poverty, I flagged up um, schooling problems, I flag flagged up transport connections, I flagged up insecurity and crime, which aren't a function of people being poor, they're a function of poor policing mm -hmm. of poor areas, which reflects society's attitude to poverty and poor areas. So there are many, many other factors which doesn't take away from the validity of your core point. But it simply isn't true in the family's eyes, and I think we should listen to people, that over seven repeat interviews, they thought that money was their only problem because they certainly did not. And as someone was saying to me today, well, actually, it's funny. I don't think Eileen Monroe will mind being quoted who ran the social work review recently, saying it's funny how many of the problems we ascribe to poor families actually are common in other families. It's just that because they're not poor, people don't pay attention and notice. So you could put the thing on its head and say there are a lot of family pro problems that are actually highlighted by what these families say. Can I just mention the report that came out today about children only getting a fraction of the exercise that parents think they get? And that was just a huge problem for our parents. Our, there, there's nowhere for them to let off steam, and we don't let them out because it's too scary. And that goes right up the classes, um, that fear. So, you know, that has to be a form of prison for families that our society has set up, which, which really will have terrible consequences and might shed a bit of light on the mental health question. Okay. Uh, on. on because it's a fairly basic question about money and inequality, <coughs> uh, can we just stick with that, Catherine, and maybe Jane, if you want to? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm delighted. I mean, I think um, it's, inter- it's a very interesting reflection because um, I used to think that too. And in a sense, one of the things that I've had to learn from the history of the Labour government is that you can transfer huge amounts through tax and benefit system and not crack your problem, actually. And I do think that there is a question to be asked about the Labour legacy of why, with the level of public spending, it wasn't more effective. Um, And I think that actually, although, as Anne says, money clearly and having sufficient financial resources clearly is the kind of starting point, actually I think one of the things about inequality and the way it works is about how it gets replicated in service provision um, and how it gets replicated in, you know, other sorts of cultural divisions within society. So actually in order to solve the money problem, you have to go much more deeply into to transforming those services. Um, and that, I think, is... I mean, the, the other, I suppose, lesson in that is about creating sustainability within the system. Um, and I think that would be another big lesson from the Labour legacy, is that um, uh, the sort of using the tax and benefit system in that way mightn't have created the kind of legacy, the sustainable legacy that you were anticipating. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I'd read from the legacy because it wasn't a clear route into longer-term financial sustainability for families living in poverty. In other words, you know, transferring money out of the system from the centre of Whitehall out uh, into people's pockets didn't actually create the kind of circumstances that enabled them and empowered them in the way that I think people were anticipating. Um, So I think money is a very important part of the solution, but it isn't the solution. Yeah, so I guess I have a slightly more positive view. Um, You know, coming from the states where we don't put money into poor parents' hands, we put all the money into services. And so I was always very intrigued by the question of, well, how much money was going into parents' pockets versus how much was going into services. And, you know, Margaret will know the exact figure, but I think it was about 60, 65 percent, about two-thirds of the money was going into parents' pockets with the idea that parents would know what to do with the money and that it was necessary to reduce material hardship. And about a third was going into services like Sure Start and other kinds of programs. And that was a conscious policy choice uh, on the part of the policymakers because they wanted to get the money in the hands of parents. And there's lots of evidence that that reduced material hardship and stress And to the extent that we know, it looks like it improved child outcomes, child behavior, child mental health outcomes. So, you know, I I too was interested in the question of whether that came through in the interviews with families, whether that... My sense was um, that when families talked about the tax credits, they talked about that extra bit of money making a big difference and allowing them to buy things for the kids. And there were problems with the administration of the program, no doubt about it, and lots of complaints about that. But um, I did get the sense that families were better off financially and, and that that was appreciated and made a difference. Um, you know, whether that did enough to move families out of poverty, well, you know, John Hills talks all the time about it. it was against a moving staircase. And, you know, incomes were rising through this period. I mean, gosh, you know, the Labour government presided over a strong economy and incomes were rising. And this made it hard to reduce poverty. Um, the families who were still in poverty were not far into poverty. They were about 10 pounds on average a week below the poverty line. So it's not like families were mainly in deep poverty. Uh, so I guess I'm a little bit more positive about um, how successful these transfers of income were. 
I think a lot of families were moved out of material hardship. I think there's a lot of evidence that conditions improve. But then again, this is my top down looking at the data. So Anne knows better than me, having talked to families. Can we, can we move on? The, the, we can discuss it later um, upstairs. <laughs> uh, but come back to uh, Mr. Wong's question about mental health. Uh, Margaret, you want to add anything on that, or I'm anybody no, else? I'm no great. I'm, no, I mean, I, my guess would be there is a link between uh, mental health and, and, and difficulties in families, but I have no. <laughs> my evidence is uh, I haven't got any evidence to back it up, so I would guess that the only thing I would add to the 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 month, uh, financial issue, of course, money matters. Of course, it matters. It's a it's a it's a, a money. Plus, and I think the really interesting research that actually John Pills did, which really I used to trumpet around uh, government when, uh, when we were in government, is that if you give families, if you give parents with, with children, poor parents with children money, they spend it on the children. And Jane's work. Was that Jane's work? Oh, right, there you are. I didn't know that. I, I was you. But anyway, there you are. So we used your evidence, and it was a, but it was a really important finding because part of the myths and part of the prejudices that uh, we have, and I see it now in the new, uh, uh, new old Tory government, is uh, uh, how feckless poor families are and you know how they would waste the money and they might buy three I don't know iPods rather than uh, buying some uh, five fruits a day for their children and that is just wrong that is just and I think that's a really important finding that we have to hang on to and that you here at the LSE both Jane and John need to carry on telling the government about could we very quickly come back to Jason's question could you just repeat the, the, it in uh, a sentence whether the, the data on children coming out of poverty in the land, we saw holidays about 600,000 children being lifted out of poverty, etc. Whether that concept of coming out of poverty resonates at the level of the individual families that you follow, and if so, what it meant to look like? Yeah, I mean, really simply, yes. I mean, Jane said, you know, her top down view was that it helped, and then she found in the book actual examples of parents talking about. Um, getting over the hump of getting into work was a really, really big deal. Getting into training that then enabled them to become, say, a teaching assistant in a school or um, going from being the cleaner in the hospital. I mean, that mother actually did eventually manage to get on her training course and she became, um, what are they called, a practice nurse or was training to become a practice nurse. All of those steps, which might seem very small to... Um, people who think that university education is the real ticket, you know, were huge to the families, and they did take families out of that crude poverty. Um, actual children, you know, mothers talked, when they did get work, it wasn't only mothers, but it was predominantly mothers, talked about being able to let their children join the gym club, or go swimming more often, or just do more things that got them out and released that pressure on the family. They hardly ever went on holiday, but if they could work and could save up for day trips, that really, really helped. I mean, that is honestly what people said. Um, and, and yeah, it does make a big difference. A small amount of money goes a long way for people who are on a low income. Can we, we're running out of time, but can we very quickly have 
four questions from this side. That, um, two in the front and two at the back. Thanks. Can you make it very brief? Please? I'll try my best. Um, good evening. Thank you. Um, I've worked um, across London and within, within local neighbourhoods um, covering housing, crime and health. So this book is quite interesting for me. Um, this is kind of directed to uh, Margaret Hodge, really. I've worked in Barkin and Dagenham and I've seen the tensions, the cultural tensions, and I've talked to a lot of the council staff that have explained, you know, the cultural tensions that's happened, you know, over the years. And I've worked across East London and there's this kind of East London culture that is preventing lots of families from actually expiring or to lift themselves out of poverty. So I find that quite interesting. Also, um, linking to... Sorry. Question. Oh, sorry. I beg your pardon. I think my question really is neighbourhood management and how Family Futures, I guess how the, the data that's within Family Futures links to neighbourhood management. Living within an urban renewal area, I see, you know, the school kids every day and, and I see, you know, the poor transportation and the, the heavy renewal of the housing, like, you know, the luxury housing that's going on in the area. And my question really is linked to how, how is that really going to lift young people out of poverty? Because I live... Okay, as I just, can we do that? Okay. Come, come to that I'm question. sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I thought a, a theme that came across in all four speakers was this question of these voices actually being heard and heard at a high level and a, what, what a certain politician I might call respect. And how, how could we work to ensure that, that you don't have to have a university degree or a significant income or lots of aspiration to be heard at those levels? and that you know, the people in these areas actually have power over the policy that determines what happens to these areas. Thank you. Uh, Tim, uh, was a study published last week uh, that showed that for every one pound spent uh, for young people uh, helping to strengthen them against drug use, uh, save four pounds later. And I'd like you to talk about uh, interesting schemes and programs to uh, stop these uh, very vicious gangs that seem to have got uh, quite a hold in, in the kind of areas that you're talking about. Thank you. And last one, the gentleman at the back. Hi, my name is Steve Burns. I work for Peabody, a large London housing association who delivers a, quite a large range of programs and has always had a remit to fight poverty. But in the, in the wider scheme of things, of, of poverty and fighting poverty, it's a huge problem in organizations like us only have quite limited resources. So given that, where do you think we can make the, the biggest difference above our core remit of providing you know, quality, affordable housing? Okay, thank you all very much. Um, Margaret, um, East London... Uh, how, I mean, neighbourhood management, I think, is yes, Anne, really, 100% Anne. But uh, um, I, I want to take up, how do you ensure the voices are heard? I think the, the answer, it's a bit of an odd answer, but you've got to lead that in your local community. I mean, I'm absolutely clear about that. that uh, uh, and, you know, whether you're the MP or whether whatever leadership role you have within your community, if you're determined to do the work in a way that puts the voice at the heart of what you do, you can do it. So I think leadership is absolutely central to ensure the voices are heard. And um, the issue about gangs that somebody raised, um, uh, I mean, this is a hugely, hugely you know, challenging 
um, area. Uh, and uh, I, we put a lot of onus on, on schools, but I think, you know, I, I agree, I, we don't have a chance to it. Schools can, are a very solid presence in local communities, and we've never exploited them sufficiently, really. They, they won't go. The schools and the churches are almost the sort of solid basis within the, the shops can change and the parks can go and the housing can change, but the schools last, on the, on the whole they survive. And what happens in there is hugely important, I think, in uh, building uh, relationships where, you know, you don't have to be cool to be in a gang. And I just, it's really, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we've got to put a lot of effort into trying to how we give young people the confidence that they can actually go through those uh, early years from 10 through to 18 or whenever it is without feeling they've <coughs> linked themselves into a gang to gain their credibility within their um, uh, peer group is, is a real struggle and it has to start with I think what happens in the school. Thank you. I'll give the last word to, to Anne uh, on uh, neighbourhood management, Peabody, or, uh, but very briefly, we're running right. out of time. Right, um, neighbourhood management, it has been proved over literally decades, not just in this country but across Europe where they have much stronger neighbourhood management, to hold conditions so it doesn't reduce poverty, it doesn't turn um, mean little flats into great luxury apartments, but it holds conditions and one of the big problems that parents are constantly combating in these areas, that the people who can hold conditions actually aren't a presence like they used to be. So caretakers aren't as common as they used to be, park keepers aren't as common as they used to be, um, police on the streets aren't as common as they used to be. And one of the most important things that happened under Labour was actually the reinstatement, the beginning of a reinstatement of lots and lots of those jobs and that's what towards the end of the book in the last part where we talk about what they noticed that changed really mattered so having more police on the streets having more caretakers at the bottom of buildings having more repairs done and being us so although i agree with margaret about local leadership it is far from being the only story if we don't ask people if we don't give them the feeling that what they say matters then they will withdraw and um just not Participate. So people have to be encouraged, and it is one of the most rewarding things that I've done all my adult life is do that, and people do have bloody good ideas, and it's just so obvious. You can only do that, though, if you have the enforcement alongside it. So on the gangs, I'll just say that one of the really devastating things that started to happen under New Labour was the closure of youth clubs. You go into a youth club, and there's a handful of lads hanging out there, and you think, oh, what a useless youth club. Close it. Let's spend the money on a better library or whatever. And then you go and knock down the local library to build a bigger, more central library. And so it goes on. And you do this gradual incremental withdrawal. And virtually all the parents talked about youth clubs closing before the Labour government actually went. And now it's devastation. So take sure start up to the school age and keep youth clubs going and think of other things that will keep young people engaged so because if you don't do that then you lose them and they're lost into this space over which there's too little control so the quote about the community police officer who knew the kid knew him by name and got him in the car to get him into school 
that's the kind of thing you want. When will schools at secondary level be given the resources they need to properly help dyslexic children so that by the time they're 13 and their reading age is still 7 or 8, they're not lost to that system and therefore opt out of school and therefore are on the streets and therefore heading straight for trouble. I mean, we do build up our problems. The other thing is that knives are a cultural thing. And once you get a knife presence, you have to really go for bust to get rid of it again. Luckily, we don't quite have a knife culture yet. But in the families, we do have, in City Survivors, there's a mother who has to say to her son, no, you can't take a knife if anybody tries to get you into trouble or get you involved, just go, just ignore it. I, I, I'm not letting you take a knife. He actually asks his mum, would it be okay to take a knife? You know, so that's, you know, it's, it's a danger point. It's, it's a really worrying sign. Okay, uh, three quick things. First, to remind you that copies available outside, bargain at twice the price, but tonight uh, at reduced price. Second, that uh, there's a reception on the eighth floor. If you want to increase your exercise, you can um, walk up or um, uh, there are lifts. Uh, and third, to thank you all for coming and uh, to thank all on the panel and particularly the authors of the book for uh, doing all the work and writing the book. Thank you very much. Indeed.